Well, we're going to be going back today into the book of Revelation. For those that have our visitors, obviously, you're going to be jumping in in the middle of Revelation. And uh, hopefully, we'll give a little bit of a review. And I want to encourage you, as I've done in the past, to, to be reading. And I would encourage you to bring your Bibles. And I know that means your cell phones and your tablets and everything else. Uh, I'm going to try to put all the scriptures on the, the screen, but it gets a little bit overwhelming. So I've, I've warned our, <laughs> he's back there going, amen, uh, that I have no idea where I'm going to go with all that today. But I just want to encourage you to be reading on your own, and, and I'm going to say it again this week, as I have every week on a sermon in Revelation. A lot of what I'm going to share is uh, symbolic. And we don't know what the symbols always represent. I can tell you what I think they represent, and that's what I'm doing, and I'm, but remember, that's me. But one thing that's usually very clear, even though we may not always understand the symbolism of what, what the individual things are supposed to truly represent, what's usually made very clear is what those things cause to happen or bring about. So we may debate over and over, what's this really mean? What's this represent? What's this angel supposed to be? What's this supposed to look like? And we can debate that forever until we get to heaven, because we won't know till then for sure. But it's usually very clear of whatever they represent, what they do or cause to happen is clear. Their purpose is clear. So that's going to be my emphasis as we start in again this morning. Just a very brief review. Revelation 1.1 tells us what the book of Revelation is about. It says this is a revelation of Jesus Christ given by God to John on the island of Patmos. So this whole book, even as we're looking through it, and some of it gets pretty heavy and deep, and it's all a revelation of Christ, giving us a greater picture of who he is. And as we were in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, I want to read this verse because it kind of lays out a real um, simple outline of what you could expect as you went through the book of Revelation. It says this, Therefore, write the things which you have seen. Write the things you have seen, past, and the things which are, present at the time of John, and the things which will take place after these things. So there's a past, present, and future aspect of the book of Revelation. And when we get to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, that follows John writing those letters to the seven churches. And now the scene changes to that that's going to come. And as you look at chapter 4, verse 1, John hears a voice in his vision, from heaven, and it says, come up here. So the scene changes from the earth and the churches of the earth. The scene changes now to heaven. And the emphasis in chapter 4 really is the focus is on the throne of God. It's on the throne and all the things that are taking place around the throne. We see the, the 24 elders around the throne. We see some crazy descriptive descriptions of some creatures that are around the throne. We hear about the myriad of angels that are around the throne worshiping God. We see all these things in chapter 4, the focus being the throne. Chapter 5, the focus switches from the throne to this book or scroll. And the scroll had seven seals around the scroll. And each one of those seals is opened one at a time. And we see that in the next chapter. And we went through the opening of the seals all six seals. And what this is all bringing is judgment of God on those who have rejected Christ. 
And when you go through the six seals, you'll see some things that are kind of, kind of horrific, actually. You'll see as we went through the seals, the first thing that's introduced is the false Christ, or what we refer to as the Antichrist. And he comes as, an, as, as a peacemaker, only he's counterfeit. And he actually, we read in the, in the Old Testament in Daniel that he, that he comes and there's actually a covenant that he, he's going to be this leader that's going to bring peace. And we see a little later that he breaks that promise in a big way. And then we see war, the second seal, famine in the third seal. In the fourth seal was called death. The fifth seal, martyrs that were killed under the, and they were under the altar. And then in the sixth seal, terror upon the earth. And if that's not bad enough, we're about ready to see the seventh seal opened. And this is where sometimes as you're reading through Revelation, you can get a little bit confused. If you remember after the sixth seal, the last time I spoke here a couple weeks ago, I I spoke about this chapter seven where it was kind of like an interlude, a parenthesis, something that's added to the story to give more clarity The story would be okay without it, but it gives us better understanding. And it was almost like I compared it to a break, intermission, if you would, of a play that's being played out in the universe, in the world. And in that break or interlude, it kind of gives an overview, but we, we finally end up in there with crazy wild worship going on in heaven. The people... The saints are worshiping God. The angels are worshiping God. The 24 elders are worshiping God. The four creatures are worshiping God. Everything and everybody is worshiping God. It was not a quiet place in the throne room of God. And then we come to chapter 8. And the seventh seal is about to be opened. Now the seventh seal is a little different than the rest because the seventh seal contains what are called the seven trumpet judgments within that seventh seal. It's almost as you could, like I I picture it in my mind, it's almost like a flower blossoms and out of that comes seven more seals. And then when you get there, seven more trumpets, and you get to the seventh trumpet, out come what's called the seven bowls or vials of God's wrath. So it all comes out of that seventh seal. So hopefully I'm not confusing you too much, but the reality is, All of God's judgments that will lead to the coming of Christ and the kingdom of God on earth are contained in the seventh seven seals. And a lot comes out of that seventh seal. The seven trumpets come out of it. And we get to the seventh trumpet, the seven bowls come out of it. So with that kind of as a background, I want to just kind of go back to when John hears a voice and he's called up to heaven. I believe that is when the church, God's people, his children, are raptured and taken from the earth. As I've said before, some people think it happens middle of the tribulation. Some people think it happens at the end of the tribulation. Some aren't even sure that it happens at all. But I believe it happens when John goes up for many, many reasons. Some I pointed out, one simply being the church isn't mentioned in the rest of the book of Revelation. And judgment is coming upon the earth And I believe where we're going to be starting out in chapter 8, we are in the three-and-a-half-year mark of that seven years of tribulation. And as I've said before, I'm not going very deep in this study. I'm just trying to give us an overview. But if you wanted to go back into Daniel, chapter 9, I believe it is, you'll be able to see where it talks about the seven years. 
and it calls them seven weeks, but each one representing a year. And it says that this, this Antichrist makes a covenant that's supposed to be a, a, a seven-year covenant, but halfway through, he breaks the covenant. Halfway through, the Antichrist eliminates all other religions on the earth and says, you need to worship me. And he has a sidekick, a minister, if you would. The Bible will call him the false prophet. And he and the false prophet decide what we need to do here is institute something called the mark of the beast. You ever heard of the mark of the beast or the sign of the beast? You ever heard of 666? This all happens at about the halfway mark of tribulation. And I believe that's where we're at if we were looking at it in a timeline as we go into the trumpets, the seventh seal being opened. All of that phony peace has been removed and forgotten, and no longer is he going to pretend. He's going to say, you're going to worship me. He's, he's centralizing all the religious and all the political power in himself. And God says, all right. He's going to step up the judgment, as we see in the trumpets, starting in chapter 8. You know, if you were watching this as a TV program, pretend that you're watching it as a TV program, this is about the time you would see that warning thing come across the screen. That it would warn you that there are going to be many things here that you don't want to see. Viewer discretion is strongly advised. Because what has taken place has been bad, but now it gets really bad and really ugly as we open the trumpets. And we're going to see as we go through this, the first four trumpets, when the trumpets sounded, the judgment that comes, the first four, it's going to be on the creation, the environment that man lives in. And then when we get to the last three trumpets and they're sounded, it becomes much more personal. Now the judgment is on man individually, and it gets even worse. We'll see today when we get to that point where, where they say, woe, woe, and woe is coming. We're already through the first four trumpets, and it's bad. What could be worse? Well, it goes from the environment to people. So with that, let's go and look at Revelation 8, starting at verse 1. Some of it I'm going to read. All of it will be on the screen at different times. might even line up with what I'm talking about once in a while. And that won't be his fault. That will be my fault. But in Revelation chapter 8, the first few verses gives us, again, a picture of the scene in heaven where it says this, And when he broke the seventh seal, who broke the seventh seal? The Lamb of God broke the seventh seal. He was the only one found worthy, if you remember. He broke the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And then another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and he filled it with the fire of the altar and he threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The scene in heaven. 
And right away here, there's so much symbolism that people don't agree upon. But the thing I want to start with is this. Imagine silence in heaven. Remember what I just said was taking place as we finish chapter 7? All of the worship and the praise going on before the throne, and all of a sudden, silence. It's awkward at about 10 seconds here, doesn't it? 30 minutes might not seem like much, but can you imagine if in heaven, for eternity past, there's been worship around the throne of God? Worship continually, 24-7, forever. And all of a sudden, silence. And it tells us specifically for a half an hour. It might seem not like a very long time in terms of eternity, but can you imagine how long it might seem when it's never been silent in heaven. And what was the silence for? Why? Why did all the angels and all the elders and all the creatures around the throne get silent? I don't know for sure, but it could be a couple things at least. One, they had seen the six seals open. They knew there was only seven, and it was a silence of expectancy. This is the last one. I wonder what's coming. Or... It could almost have been a silence of foreboding. We've seen the judgments that have come in the first six seals. What could be coming as the seventh seal is opened? Whatever it is, whatever the reasoning, the silence would have been deafening. That was the reason for the title of my message, The Silence Before Destruction Comes. The seven angels... It appears that these seven angels are around the throne, before the throne, always. It's as if they're God's special messengers. When he has a special task, it's one of the seven angels is sent out. And they're the ones that are given the seven trumpets. And notice, all of these things that take place in Revelation, God is in control. Even when we hear a word like, you know, the restraints were removed from the earth, Restraints were removed for for evil, but only to the extent that God allowed them to be removed. Everything that's taking place is as God plans it and allows it to happen. Everything. Who's the other angel? And again, I'm not going to go on all the different opinions on all the way through this. We'll be here forever. But some people think that seventh angel is Jesus. Excuse me, the other angel, the one with the censer, the one with the incense and the prayers of the saints. It's kind of in a priestly role, so they can, some people think it's Jesus. But it says an other angel, so I, I am of the persuasion that it is another high-ranking angel. The word there, another, in the Greek is alos, and what that means is another of like fashion, or another one just like. So I believe it's another angel. But you can see the differing opinions that come. And we don't know for sure, but we know what happens for sure. That angel takes fire and throws it to the earth. And we aren't even opening a trumpet yet. This is like a wake-up call from God. And notice, a lot of things in the six seals could be explained away by natural things, you know, like famine and the disasters, all of that stuff. But all of a sudden now things are saying, no, this is not natural. This is God. It comes from heaven. And when it comes, we hear that there is thunder. 
the sounds and, and flashing of lightning, and then it says an earthquake, just to get the earth's attention before the first trumpet is even blown. And they are ready to blow the trumpets. And in chapter or verse 7, we see the first angel. And I'm going to go through these relatively quickly and, then, and with just a little bit of detail. So I, I hope you can follow with because each one is amazing in its judgment. The first one, in verse 8, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 7, and the first angel sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. It's hard to picture what that means when the fire and all mixed with blood, but it's very easy and clear to understand what it causes to happen. Think about it. A third of the trees were burned up. All the green grass or grass-like plants. And it's interesting to me that grass-like plants are the plants that provide much of the food to the world. The wheat, the barley, the corn, rice, all of these green grass-like plants that provide food for the world, a third of them gone, all of them gone. What does that bring? Famine. Control people, control the food. You can see what's beginning to happen right away, that there's something taking place. That's, it's like a big setup as the end is winding down. Verse 8 and 9, it says something like, a great mountain is thrown into the, burning with fire is throwing into the sea as the second angel, the second trumpet. Notice it doesn't say a great mountain. It's very clear, something like, which of course gives theologians and you and I that read it all kinds of room to imagine. What could that be? We don't know for sure. Some really think it could be a volcanic eruption in the middle of an ocean. Others think it's something like a meteorite coming down and fire and burning and crashing into the ocean. Whatever it is, we can speculate. But the results, once again, are clear as they're given for us. A third of the sea becomes blood. A third of the sea life dies. And a third of the ships are destroyed. Imagine the tsunami that would be produced. Imagine the death that would be taking place. And again, it's interesting to me that so much of the food source is destroyed with the first trumpet. And how does most of our foods get shipped around the world? Well, shipped, right? A third of the ships are destroyed. So even what's left, if there would be places on the earth where there was some food, it'd be hard to transport it. The food is, again, in my mind, an important part of what's taking place here. And the third trumpet blows. And it says, A great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, in verses 10 and 11. Speculation, all you want. Reality, what it did, very clear. Poisons a third of the waters of the earth. The star is called wormwood. And the word wormwood is, comes from a tree in Palestine. The wormwood is, was a very strong, bitter bark tree. 
And the water, it's called wormwood because it makes the waters bitter and poisonous. And again, people die. Many die. In my mind, in the background, I'm looking at the food, the transportation of the food, and now fresh water. Boy, if somebody's got food and fresh water, they can control just about anything, can't they? The next trumpet blows, and it's in verses 12 and 13. A third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, it says, are smitten. And it says, what does that mean? They become dark. And for a third of the day, the sun is darkened. A third of the night, the moon is darkened, and the stars are darkened. Speculation. There's one very reliable theologian who writes a lot of commentaries who believes that this time there is such a dramatic change that the day goes from being a 24-hour day to a 16-hour to a day. Others believe it's something like an eclipse that darkens the sun and then it darkens the moon and the stars. The reality is, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what causes it. But it changes everything that science knows about the way the universe operates. No natural phenomena could explain such an event. The judgment is coming from God. What it looked like, I don't know. And then at the end of this section of the fourth trumpet, it says if John has seen all these first three, four things happen, and then he hears something. And it's interesting again to me, he said he hears an eagle flying in the sky. Some translations actually say he hears an angel flying in the sky, shouting with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe. Three times. Woe to who? To those who dwell on the earth. Why? Because of the three remaining trumpets. All of the destruction, all of the death, all of the things that have happened in those first four, and it's like saying, you haven't seen anything yet. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Because the next three that are coming, it's changing. It's not going to be just the environment. It's not going to be just the surrounding. It's not going to be things happening to the sun, the moon, and stars, the plants, the trees. It's not going to be just those things. Now it's going to come upon mankind, people. In Revelation 9, verses 1 through 12, I'd love to read all of it, but I'm going to just read the first couple of verses. It says in verse 1, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. Had fallen sometime previous. He didn't see it fall. It had fallen. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And he opened the bottomless pit. And smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And the smoke came forth, out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth. 
and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree. Interesting, isn't it? That's what locusts do. But these don't. These, it says, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death, and they won't even be able to find it. And they will long to die, and death will flee from them. And then verses 7, 8, 9 talk about the appearance of these crazy things called locusts. And then verse 11, it says, and they have a king. They have a king over them. The angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And his name in the Greek is Apollyon. And the first woe is past. Behold, but look, watch out. Two woes are still coming after these things. This first woe, the fifth trumpet, the star, it appears quite clearly that the star is a symbol for a person or at least a creation, a created being of some sort. And this star, this person, is given the key to the abyss. Some people interpret this as actually that this, this person is Jesus. When you read the rest of it, I, there is no way in my mind that it could possibly be Jesus. Something as simple as he, does, he already has the keys. He doesn't need to have them given to him. And he's going to be the king over these locusts. I believe it's clear as you go through this, this is Satan. Satan is the star that has fallen. The names in the Greek and the Hebrew, Abaddon and Apollyon, both mean the same thing. The destroyer. So Satan, I believe, is given the keys to the kingdom in this, or keys to the abyss in this trumpet. And he opens and unleashes this horde of what are called locusts. What are the locusts? I don't know. I think they're demons. Could they literally be some creature created with the description that's there? Yes. And one of the things you always need to remember when you go through Revelation, there are so many things that are so futuristic, there is no way John would have understood with his natural mind what these things could have been. Many, many people, and probably with some good, good thinking and good logic, see a lot of what's talked about in these judgments as uh, implements of war that we now have that our military has. They see these things in a different way. But I just look at it, and I th symbolism is nice, but what I want to know is, what do they do? Because that God makes clear to us. The locusts couldn't hurt the grass, couldn't hurt the trees, nor any green thing. But men who do not have the mark of God on their forehead, and they couldn't kill anyone. Can you imagine the agony and the pain and the torment, physical, mental, and emotional pain and torment, and you couldn't even commit suicide. 
they would want to die and death would flee from them. There was nothing they could do to alleviate the suffering and the torment of the locust and the destroyer. All coming upon mankind to meet the justice of God in him handing out judgment. For those that have been here for the study, you remember the martyrs that were found under the throne or under the altar? And what they cried out to God was, How long, O God? How long, O God, before you get vengeance for what they've done to persecuting us in your church? Well, vengeance is being poured out a big time on people. The first woe is past. And really, it's the way I think. When I read that word behold, it can mean many things like pay attention or this is coming next. To me, it's like get ready. As bad as it was, it's going to get worse. Brings us to the sixth trumpet, verses 13 through 21. This time there's a voice that comes from the four horns of the golden altar, the place, the presence of God. And what it does, it says it's prepared to release these four angels who have been bound at the river Euphrates. And when they get released, they are going to bring judgment on the earth. And it's just a little sidebar, but it's interesting to me that the river Euphrates showed up first in the book of Genesis, telling us where the Garden of Eden was located, where sin first entered the world. And now judgment is going to be released by these four angels that have been held here. And as we read through it, you'll see, well, let's read a couple verses. Release the four angels, I'm in verse 14, who are bound at the great river Euphrates, and the angels, the four angels, who had been prepared for the hour, day, month, and year, they were released. Why? So they could kill a third of mankind. Again, it's important what they were, who they were, and it's worth maybe imagining, but it clearly tells us whatever they were, they were released to kill one-third of the population of the earth. The judgment of God is severe for those who have rejected Christ. The torment. And it tells us this, and boy, does this make for discussion. It tells them there are how many in this army. It calls them horsemen. And it says 200 million and notice the way Paul, or John says it. I can find it quickly. Verse 16. And the number of armies of the horsemen was 200 million. And then he says, just to make sure you get it, he says, I heard the number 200 million. I don't think it's just a big number to say it's going to be a really big army. I personally think it says 200 million and it's going to be 200 million. But what I don't know is, what is that army? Is it symbolic of creatures? Is it symbolic of demons? Or is it a little literal army coming from the east? Many say there's never been an army that big on planet Earth. China has claimed to have an army bigger than that for many, many years already. I don't know. And while it's not something I want to ignore... It's not as important as what I know clearly from what it says. A third of mankind is going to be killed. 
So what does that mean in terms of life on planet Earth? If you remember back in the fourth seal, or you can go back and check, one-fourth of the population of the Earth was killed. Three-fourths remained. Now one-third in the sixth trumpet, one-third of that three-fourths is killed. For those of you that are pretty good in math, you'll figure out quickly that means one-half of the population of the planet from the beginning of the tribulation to wherever we're at now in that seven-year time span is dead. And it's really a very short time. Half the population has been killed. Staggering, isn't it? The judgment of God being carried out by God. But as staggering as that is, when I read through this whole chapter 8 and chapter 9, the next two verses probably boggle my mind more than anything else that's taken place. Read with me verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9. A third of them have been killed. Half the people are dead. Now it says, the rest of mankind, in other words, those that are still alive, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of murders, their sorceries, their immorality, nor any of their thefts. Can you imagine all that's taken place in a relatively few number of years They have witnessed things that are so supernatural they could not possibly deny that there is a supreme being of some sort doing something big. Half the people that they ever would have known are dead. Plagues, suffering, torment they went through for those five months from those locusts released from the pit, the abyss. All of this has taken place, and then it says the people that weren't killed don't Repent. Mind-boggling. A hardened heart. A hardened heart. And then when we get to the end of verse 21, I can't help but see at least the beginning similarities of what's taking place today. And by no means am I saying we're in the tribulation because we're not. But the similarities, what we see there, I believe, is the inevitable outcome of a culture or a society or a people who become very humanistic and have rejected Christ. It's natural. It shouldn't surprise us. There is either those who serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and are part of the kingdom of God or those that are serving the kingdom of the devil. There's not an in-between. And it's not always blatant. It talks about demons and idols. The reality is demons are behind any idol. And anything that takes the place of God in our lives is an idol. Yes, they could be made of gold or silver or wood or stone. They could be. Or they could be made of materialism, stuff, 
recreation, other people, anything that's an idol is really got demonic things behind it. And the general, general trend would be as we see here. Notice, I'm going to do three things that I think are so powerful. One, there is a re- rebellious unrepentance present. The rest who were not killed will not repent. They would not repent of the work of their hands. The humanistic point of view that it's all about people. It's all about me. I can do it all. I can handle it. I can figure it out. Whatever I want, whatever pleasure I want, it's all about me. And they're acting and thinking that way in spite of what God has done. And then we see the demonic, idolatrous, religious, in part, the second part of that verse, to worship demons and idols, etc. They continue, in spite of what's taking place, they continue to pursue a lifestyle of sin. They don't want to change. They don't want to change. In spite of all that's taking place, they still refuse to change. And they're hanging on to, and we hang on to, idols in our lives, thinking that they will meet a need in our life, fill a void in our life, and the reality is they can't. They can't. Only God can fill that need, and yet they refused. And then the third thing there, the moral decay. And it lists four things there, murders, sorceries, immorality, and thefts. And notice they're all plural. What are they hanging on to? When they reject God, what they hang on to is things of the enemy. Mankind, men, will do this. We will do this. These four results characterize people who are serving the kingdom of darkness, whether they know it or not. Murders. Life becomes meaningless. Life becomes meaningless. Murder will be rampant. Take a life. If something's in your way, something upsets you, take a life. If it's inconvenient, abort it. Whatever it is, life becomes meaningless. Murderers, common. The next thing it says is sorceries, plural. The Greek word there is fornikia. Or pharmakia, pharmakia, excuse me, pharmakia. It's the word we get pharmacy from. The word means drugs and incantations, enchantments, sorcery. It would seem like that it's going to be a time where there's going to be rampant use of drugs. And a lot of the mystical things, the mysticisms, basically the whole corrupt part of the New Age movement taking place. And they don't want to let go. The immorality is the word pornea. The immorality is sexual immorality. Fornication. Sex outside of marriage. Adultery. Illicit sex. Homosexuality. Lesbianism. Bestiality. All of these things will, sexual immorality, are going to become rampant and common and almost approved and cheered as man becomes more corrupt. And the thefts, the stealing, the lying, the cheating, fraud, whatever it takes to get ahead because it's all about me. 
the characteristics of the end times, this is what everybody that's alive at this time in the future, everybody's going to be like this. So I think what we see today is maybe just a little picture of what's coming. Pretty horrible picture. Pretty grim picture. What can we learn from it? Well, hopefully many things. But I think one of the things we can learn from it, and I think this is so basic, really quite simple, and very, very important. One thing that we can learn is suffering and punishment will not change a human heart. Suffering and punishment will not change the damage, the brokenness to a sinful heart. There's only one thing. I mean, if, if suffering and punishment would change a human heart, it should have been the biggest revival ever. There should have been no one of the remaining 50% that are alive not to accept Christ. But no one does. Suffering and punishment won't do the trick. The only thing that can mend a broken heart, a sinful, sinful, broken heart in the fallen state of humanity is the new birth. Regeneration. A new nature. The divine nature that's given to anybody who wants it as a gift by God. Closing with this verse in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. As we read Revelation, as we talk about Revelation, as we try to understand it as best we can, one thing should be easy to understand. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be on what our natural mind can even imagine, and yet human beings are going to live through it. And it could really come at about any time. Theologians tell us that all the prophecies that need to be fulfilled before the rapture have pretty well been fulfilled. So the rapture could happen tomorrow which means that's the beginning of the tribulation, which means the judgment of God could begin. And I believe from Scripture that we've talked about, you won't get a second chance during the tribulation if you've had an opportunity and rejected it in this life. So why would anybody risk it? Why would anybody say, well, I've still got plenty of time? Why would anybody say, I'll think about it? You know, you're already old, Mike. You got to be young and do all those stupid things already. I just need to do a few stupid things. And then I might change my mind. We don't understand the risk that we're taking. The reality is Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins, died on a cross, and offers us a new life, a new birth, a new nature in him. And all we need to do is accept it. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you and praise you for the gift of salvation through Jesus. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to woo and draw all those who do not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, who have never accepted the gift of salvation, Father, that you would not allow their hearts to become hardened. Father, that you would woo them by your Spirit, extend them grace that they might receive the gift of salvation. God, I thank you, even as hard as these words are here and to hear in Revelation, I thank you that you have given us these words. That you have given us a picture of what is coming. And I thank you, Lord, when we get to the end of this book, we see the victory fully manifested. 
that we have the certain hope of victory through Jesus, that you are coming back and you are going to rule and reign on a new earth. So, Lord, I pray that if there would be anyone here, today would be the day they would cry out and surrender their life to you. Father, I pray now that as we go our different directions, we go and you watch over us, protect us, give us grace to to minister life and love to those that we would come in contact with. I pray for the bridal shower. Lord, I just praise you and thank you what you do when you bring two people together. Format new family unit. Pray you would bless their time of gathering today. And Father, we do continue to pray for our farmers. Father, in the weather that we've got. Father, they're, they are the people who feed most of the planet. Pray, God, that you would give wisdom, give patience, and minister to them as they put their hope, their trust, and confidence in you in all things. And we ask all of these things, God, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.